G'day, I'm Chris Reynolds. I'm the designer of Armour Digital Miniatures Wargame, which is published by Wordforge Games, and you're listening to Legends of Tabletop. Good. I was going to say good evening, but I, you know, I guess it's the middle of the afternoon for you. How are you doing? We'll, we'll, we'll say good day. It's a nice general sort of uh, concept, so we can go with that. <laughs> cool, cool. We're doing a, a little bit of, a, of time manipulation on our own. It's Thursday for you, which is kind of weird because it's Wednesday for me. It's it's. Yeah, we're, we're calling for the future. Yeah, yeah. That, that's pretty cool. We, we don't get that too often. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So... Uh, you, you guys are, we'll start with you guys are fully funded, so that's awesome, right? You guys are, are, are doing really well on the Kickstarter. Yeah, we're, we're funded. We're three stretch goals down. Um, anyone who's been involved in Kickstarter in the past uh, is familiar with, you have a big chunk at the start and a big chunk in the end, and we're sort of in that, that middle period where uh, we're just getting the word out there and letting people know about our game. But, yeah, we're, we've got a strong start to, uh, to build on, and we're, we're looking forward to what we get up to at the end of the campaign as well. Nice, and and this is is not your first rodeo. You guys have uh, five fully funded and and realized kickstarters, with this one being the sixth. So, how, how do you find the process now? Well, it's, it is actually my first rodeo uh, personally. Okay. I'm the uh, I'm the designer of this particular game, but Wordforge, yeah, it does have a, uh, a pedigree. Uh, Mark Rapson, who's the uh, the the head of Wordforge, he originally came from another company and ran a couple of very successful uh, kickstarters over there. Came and ran um, his own one with uh, Devil's Run, which um, he came back with an expansion for as well. And, yeah, a few other games and, uh, and board games and the like. So there's Gorball, there's Cheeks, there's the highly successful D-Day Dice that's just come out as well. So, yeah, these these guys know their, um, know their Kickstarter quite well and they're well used to delivering on these things. Cool. Now, are you managing some of the day-to-day -day stuff with this uh, Kickstarter in particular? Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm the rules designer for this one, I'm trying my best to answer people's uh, questions when it comes to how does this work, how does that work, and, yeah, just generally interacting with the fans. You know, it's 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 one thing to develop a game, but it's another thing to be able to actually enjoy it with the people who play. And, and I'm a gamer myself, so I really don't want to um, distance myself from other gamers, if you know what I mean. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I, as I was doing my research, I was looking through some of the other Kickstarters and stuff, and you mentioned the D-Day Dice. There was a shit ton of stuff in the Kickstarter. Holy crap! It's um, and, and it didn't start that way either. I mean, this this is what built up over the course of the campaign, and uh, this this is some of uh, Mark's experience when it comes to uh, Kickstarters really coming to the fore. You know, you you see the the campaign at the start, but then every time you hit a stretch goal, you, you start adding more and more to it. And people people have probably seen a little bit of that from us so far. Um, uh, it's a British publisher, so therefore British pounds are being used as a currency. But the uh, the freebies we've chucked in so far, two sixteen pound models. Um, and that's at Kickstarter prices, not the full retail prices. So, yeah, those have been chucked in as freebies. And um, there's there's plenty more to come in that score as well. So, yeah, people should uh, should really stay tuned. Cool, cool. Well, so let me ask you this, because we're starting about Kickstarter. And I don't know if you want to answer or not, because it, you know, kind of like rubs at Kickstarter a little bit. Um, but do you, do you think that I'm, – I'm trying to find my question. 
the current model for Kickstarter, the way it is sort of with, you know, stretch goals and all those sorts of things. Uh, I saw uh, a, a thread on Shane Hensley's uh, Facebook page where they were kind of discussing Kickstarter and stuff. Do you, do you think it lends uh, like a certain sense of entitlement to, uh, you know, people that are coming in and backing all these Kickstarters? And, and uh, you know, we're talking about games specifically, and I don't think that other you know, areas of Kickstarter probably function the same way. But but there is that, like, you know, let me get as much as I can for, you know, as little as I can. And then when, you know, stuff is delayed, it's a really weird dynamic for Kickstarter. Well, look, my, my firmest opinion on the matter is that people are weird. And um, I know this with some experience because I'm weird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we all are. And you can show the same message to three different people and get six different opinions. And this is really brought out by Kickstarter. You're talking about people who are looking at a product they can't hold in their hands and say, oh, yes, I can see what this is. They're talking about a product they can just sort of see a, a sales pitch for. So some people are going to walk in and they're going to go, well, how much can I get for this pre-order? Other people are going to just see it and immediately go, this is fantastic, the best thing ever, and back it. Um, and I know I've done that in the past. A couple of things I've seen that I was quite nostalgic about, uh, uh, one game in particular I, I, I backed and then immediately after the campaign finished, I realised, hang on a sec, all the guys I used to play this game with, they've all moved to other cities and <laughs> I can't play them anymore. Right. So, essentially what we're doing with Kickstarter, it's it's one part launching the game and giving it that financial backing to be able to make it something that goes on and on, but it's also one part marketing. You know, you show this to people who are early adopters. There are plenty of people that are never going to pledge on Kickstarter, plenty of people who've tried it in the past and decided never again. Um, we're not going to get those people here. We need... Kickstarter to be able to get to retail so we can reach all those other people. This is particularly so because the game that we're bringing out, uh, the main selling point with it is the gameplay. Every uh, every demo game I've run, I've got about an 85 to 90% strike rate in terms of people playing the game and then at the end of it going, this is a really good game. And in order to get the game out there in front of people so they can actually see it, we, we go through this process. So, yeah. Sure, sure. Um, how long was, was Armour Digital in development for? So it's been in development for about 18 months. Um, now, I say 18 months, but uh, I do have two young kids, so um, the amount of time that I can spend on this versus other things, <laughs> I could probably condense it quite a lot more if, if I didn't have that, that lovely distraction. Sure. Uh, that said, though, only about the first sort of uh, four to six months were spent really um, churning a game from this rough product into more or less the rules that you see today. The last 12 months have all been about balancing, all been about uh, finding all those little negative game experiences that occur only once in a blue moon and trying to iron out all of those uh, those issues. Sure. Now, do you guys have, um, you know, like a playtesting group that you meet with specifically? Do you, you know, do conventions? Do you do, uh, you know, your local gaming store? Like what, what's your process as far as trying to get it out to the table and, you know, sort of work through some of that nuance? So, um being in Australia, we're not the biggest of markets, and this is where I have uh, have my you know my playtesting group uh, here in the local area, Canberra in uh, in Australia, nation's capital. I've also got some others in uh, Australia as well, like some down in Melbourne, for example. Outside of that, though, the publisher is in the UK in uh, uh, Whitnash in the UK, and they've got a, uh, a storefront, Crescent Gaming Consortium. So, if any of your listeners are from uh, from the UK and nearby, feel free to pop in and, and see the game in person. So, they're running demos. But uh, we've actually embraced the future as well, and uh, we've got a modification for a game called Tabletop Simulator on Steam. So I don't know if, if your listeners are familiar with this, but basically if you buy a copy of this game called Tabletop Simulator, 
you can play, you know, any sort of board game, miniatures, war game, that sort of stuff that somebody has made a, a modification for. So as long as you've got a copy of that game, you can download our uh, our mod for free and you can actually try the game out. It has all the rules, all the cards, all the miniatures, exactly as you'll see them uh, if you buy the game. Uh, they're in the, in the mod to play with, so yeah. Cool. I've, I've never used Tabletop Simulator, but can you like change paint schemes and stuff on there for, for miniatures and stuff like that, or is that kind of locked in? Uh, what, what we've modified and, and created is, is locked in, so I've got a blue and a red team built. Um, if you're really good with uh, 3D modeling and you can create a new, um, uh, a new skin for these vehicles, that's all you need to do, and yeah, you can repaint the vehicles and, and play with it there. Um, this game is, you know, our mod is totally free, some mods on their charge, but we're, we're very happy if somebody wants to go and create a new paint scheme and, and uh, show us what they've got. I'd love to see it. Cool, cool. Uh, so is it, does, does having something on Tabletop Simulator, you feel like it may detract from sales in the long run, or is it one of those things that, you know, okay, we're going to use this as marketing because we need to expose as many people as we can, and hopefully they like it enough that they want a physical thing that they can sit and, and be at the table? Because a lot of people that we, that we talk to, you know, do have have stuff on Tabletop Simulator. Yeah. Um, with this game, probably not so much as maybe with a board game. Board games are often, because there's a board and other sort of constraints as to how you move your pieces around, they play a little easier on our Tabletop Simulator. Whereas when you're a miniatures wargamer, you tend to prefer building your own scenery and painting your own miniatures and all that sort of, you know, the hobby aspects as well as what you uh, play with on the table. And look, um, my, my primary aim for, for making the mod in Tabletop Sim was in order to get it across the ocean and, and show people in America and the UK and Germany and Italy and Sweden, you know, all these places that um, would cost me an arm and leg and, and half a day to, or a whole day to fly to, um, I can get out and reach them if they're interested in playing and show them what, what the game is. And often people, you know, we're, we're not really uh, not really big on the, uh, the virtual reality side of the house when it comes to war games. So a lot of people might go and pick it up and, and play it once or twice on Tabletop Simulator, but they prefer the, the physical product over the um, virtual one. Sure. I mean, it's like playing games with, you know, people. Like, all my gaming is pretty much online now as far as role-playing games go. Everything's for the podcast. But the difference between having a, you know, a group in meat space where you can actually sit at the table and play, we're playing online. It's a, it's still fun, but it's a different experience for sure. Yeah. Right. So you're the designer for this game, but this is not the first game you've designed. You've been uh, designing since you've been a kid, right? Yeah. You know, I think I was about uh, 10 or 11 years old when um, I developed my first game, which uh, had an impressive distribution of one. Um, <laughs> play, uh, built a, a play mat. Basically, it was a, it was a war game, board game type, uh, type of thing with counters and, and map. And it was all about the Eureka Stockade Assault. For, for those who are unaware, it's an Australian... Uh, a historical event where a whole bunch of miners during the gold rush decided that they weren't going to put up with licensing fees anymore and uh, created their own stockade and their own flag and all that sort of stuff. And the uh, Victorian police decided to come in and dissuade them of that opinion at the point of a, a gun and bayonet. So, yeah. And um, from there, I've, I've gone on and developed other little games just with my, my brothers and, and the like. And even when I was playing uh, other people's war games like uh, Warhammer Fantasy and, and those sorts of things, I'd still go and develop, say, a campaign system that went alongside that. Um, and it was when uh, when the latest version of Warzone came out, Warzone Resurrection, that uh, I was heavily involved in that. That was the game I mentioned before, being very nostalgic. I played it in, in high school and came back to play the new version because I loved the look of the miniatures. And 
uh, I, I got so involved with it, I ended up being part of the rules committee that developed the uh, 1.5 update there, and I actually created several of the uh, units that you can see now if you uh, if you look at the game. For example, the um, uh, the, the rules for the Tatsu Gigamech and the Bushido Master and the Mishima faction, they're, they're both uh, some of mine. Same with the battalion rules for, for capital. Um, so I'm, I'm very proud of having brought those into um, into existence, but it, it was sort of a step from professionally designing rules for an existing game to then go and develop my own game from scratch. Sure. And, and what was it about, what, what sort of hooked you to be like, oh, I can do that or, you know, I, like what what sort of was the the turning wheels that that sort of sucked you into into gaming and game design? Um, it's been so long that I really can't remember exactly what sucked me into gaming. <laughs> you know, it's it's one of those things you sort of go, well, I've always been here. <laughs> you know, it's it's always been something I've I've been into. And, and with game design, it's been an equally uh, equally immersive sort of experience for me. I've I've often looked at things and sort of said to myself how can I take that apart and understand how it all works and put it back together? And, and designing it as a game is one of the best ways I've found to do that. You know, you understand more about the world if you um, can take apart parts of it and turn them into a, a game that people can experience. Cool. Very cool. And then talking about stories, there's also um, a lot of, uh, you know, backstory and, and, and we'll say fluff elements uh, yeah. in regards to Armor Digital. And that, that's all come from you, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we were talking uh, briefly off air about uh, post-apocalyptic scenarios. Um, it, it's, it's quite a, a well-trodden uh, genre at the moment with particularly zombies, but also things like virus outbreaks and the like. We've opted for as realistic as possible an AI uh, post-apocalyptic scenario. So this is, it's high tech. There's a lot of uh, high technology that's still available, still functioning, not necessarily breaking down. But what's happened is humanity relied on AI for all of its labor and the AI is not malicious. It's not out to try and exterminate humanity. All that happened was there was a uh, more or less a terrorist attack by programmers that removed the safety margins from it. So say you've got an agricultural AI that's there in uh, growing crops. Suddenly, without the safety uh, mechanisms in place, it sees human beings there picking fruit and treats them like any other pest and just neutralizes them. A mining AI will go, oh, look, there's a whole lot of really useful resources over there that my core programming tells me to pick up. I just have to clear that city out of the way, and then I'm good to pick them out of the ground. And obviously, when AI start doing these sorts of things, humanity doesn't react particularly well to it. And when we attacked them, that's when their self-preservation sort of mechanisms kicked into place, and they fought back. So, yeah, they're not out to destroy us. They're just out to mine or grow or build or whatever it is their core programming uh, entails. And it turned into a war because we decided to fight back. And from there, it got down to a stalemate. And humanity is now scattered in these sort of uh, uh, castle-like high-tech uh, refugee camps. The AI are out there in the wilderness somewhere still trying to follow their core programming. But the soldiers that humanity had to fight them with are, are these people called the digipaths. Um, and their special skill is basically they have a brain structure that allows them to reprogram computers at the speed of thought as long as they've got the right equipment sort of hooked up to their brains to, to transmit. And they're left now without commanders, without people to protect, and they've decided to make their own decisions. And uh, as all people tend to do when you're making your own decisions, no one agrees. So they've split into a whole bunch of factions based on their ideology. Oh, and then there's, uh, I think, six, six different factions in the game? Six or nine? Yeah, six factions in the game. Um, each of them has a different stance in terms of whether they should be in charge or whether they should help the remnants of humanity, 
whether they're involved with humanity or they're sort of withdraw to themselves, uh, what their particular focus is. So, for example, um, the, one of the main antagonistic pairings there is the, the hoplites versus the Templars. So the hoplites, um, these people are, are all about uh, strength and might makes right. So we are the digipaths, we're the strong people, we have all the military technology, we should be in charge and calling the shots. They, they draw on sort of the themes of, uh, of ancient Greece and Sparta and in their um, uh, in their sort of visual motif. But because of the corruption of a lot of data during the war with the AI, they might consider 300 to be an authoritative uh, historical source rather than simply an entertainment movie like we, we understand it. And on the other side, you've got the Templars who are all about defending the remnants of humanity, even though humanity is uh, quite mistrusting of these digipaths, some of which want to enslave them. So they don't necessarily get on particularly well, but they see themselves as shepherding everybody else as opposed to trying to take over. But does it kind of lend itself to like a campaign style play then, or are you, you know, and, and are there mechanics that sort of, um, you know, play on that interaction between the factions or just I put my tanks down and, you know, I pull my cards and I, I do my actions or is there some greater uh, interaction between all that? Yeah. So, um, at the moment, what's in the Kickstarter is the basic game, but we certainly have uh, a lot of rules that are either in production or in concept at the moment for things like campaign play, like you like you mentioned. With the factions, um, I should point out that all of the factions have access to the same technology. So if you buy, say, a Rhino tank, you can use it in any of the different factions. If you want to try out a different faction, it's very easy to do. Once you do choose a faction, though, your commanders actually receive a few bonuses, which really edge them towards their particular style of play for their faction. So whether it's uh, being more defensive if you're a Templar or being more offensive if you're a Hoplite, you get a, a bonus to the commander's ability to get the ability to trade some stats for others during the other uh, game as a bit of a tactic. But uh, as something nice and unique, you actually change your victory conditions. Hmm. So um, yeah, no normally in a, in a basic game of, um, of Armored Digital, you've got sort of a best two out of three. So you're trying to control ground, you're trying to cause more kills than the enemy, and you're trying to um, destroy the enemy command vehicles as uh, much as possible. And if you have a faction, then you are going to add a fourth victory condition that you can try and achieve. Now, one, one of the reasons I said the Templars and the Hoplites were great antagonistic pairing is the Hoplites uh, condition is you want to have more of your units in the enemy's deployment zone than they do. And the Templars want to have more of their units in their own deployment zone than the enemy. So, yeah, you, you really play that one directly against each other. Some of the other factions are a little bit uh, more esoteric and they don't necessarily... Uh, uh, they're not a, a straight antagonistic pairing with any other, but yeah, depending on how you like to play, there's a whole range of different uh, victory conditions that you can actually add to the game. Cool. Yeah, these poor AIs, you know, they're just trying to follow their prime directive, and here we go mucking it all up. <laughs> Humanity is always the worst, isn't it? Yeah, you know what? I, I I sound like a crazy person if I say like that I worry about AI because it's not that right. Like I don't lose sleep over it, but like. You know, like my laptop, it continues like Windows 10. I can't turn the updates off. I, it has to update. I keep turning them off. I keep uninstalling shit and whatever, and it keeps doing it, right? So it's like, but it's but it's like on an nth level, right? Like if you just smart houses and smart cars, like some in Arizona, someone here just got ran over like two weeks ago, uh, you know, with a with a, a driverless Uber. So like yeah. we're moving towards this future. Like I'm not a big fan. <laughs> Uh, but I sound like a crazy person if I say that, probably. Well, science fiction is all about um, warning us about the potential dangers of our, our technology. And at, at its core, science fiction always comes down to 
a human problem with a human solution. And, and that's what this is. I mean, AI at this stage of its development is just a tool. It's, um, I think I saw a webcomic uh, not too long ago about um, the part that people really worry about with AI is this point where AI develops its own uh, self-awareness. But the part that the comic drawer was worried about is the part where you can uh, autonomously kill someone with a drone through to that point where they become self-aware because during that point, it's the people that are in control that you really have to worry about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially with our modern warfare and all that kind of, not to get into like a whole thing, but yeah, I mean, you have somebody sitting here that's, you know, doing something, you know, thousands of miles away. Yeah. There, there's then, a huge disconnect. Yeah. Even in the game's backstory, it's not, as much as I say it's a golden age, it's, um, it is a post-scarcity world that, uh, that we came from before the war with the AI, but that doesn't mean it's a perfect world. You know, the, the power of the, um, uh, of the control of the AI was invest in those people that had the capital to, mm -hmm. to invest in them. So you're sort of at the feudal whims of these, uh, these people who have, uh, have the AI rather than necessarily your democratic power in a government or, or something along those lines. So, yeah, nothing is ever perfect when it comes to human society, I guess. Sure, right. <laughs> so uh, for, for what people need to know for the game, there's essentially three things. They need to know how to move, how to shoot, and what the turn sequence is. Is that yep. pretty much sum it up? That pretty much sums it up. So if you've played war games before, when I run my demo games, most war gamers are across it by the end of turn one. That's how quickly you pick up the basics of this game. That said, there's a, there's a lot of depth in it in terms of uh, which orders cards you choose, and I'll, I'll get to those in a sec, which orders cards you choose, who you play them on, who your target is, all that sort of stuff. There's so many levels of choice there that you'll never play the same game twice, and you'll never... Uh, you, you'll find there are a whole range of different valid strategies that you can use to try and achieve your aims. It's not just this is the one way to go and that's it. So um, with this with this particular game, if you know the basics of how to move and how to shoot, what we use is orders cards. So this is you play a card and it tells you exactly what you need to do on the uh, on the card. And as all you really need to call out in the rules is how to move and how to shoot. So you might play a shoot card. It'll say follow the basic rules. You go through that. Or it might say precision fire, where you're trading off some of your firepower for a better chance to hit and a greater range. Or rapid fire, which goes the other way. And as you get further into the game and you pick up more units, you actually increase the uh, number of different orders cards you have to play with. So none of these orders cards are higher or lower in terms of power level than any other. They're all on the same board level, just that some are more useful in some situations. And they just expand your tactical toolbox. So you can go from those basic shooting orders, for example. If you pick up a, a, a Rhino as a separate um, uh, add-on, you'll get a couple of uh, what we call HV shot or hypervelocity shot cards. Now, these ones, it's another shooting action, but there are restrictions like you can't have moved during that turn. And when you shoot, if you roll a six, the enemy can't actually save against those particular shots because they go straight through the armor with their uh, velocity. And there's a chance you also blow out some of your um, uh, induction coils and your railgun in so doing as well. Sure. Um, and then uh, you're so you'll you'll have a commander, and then um, that allows you to draw a certain number of cards to start your turn, and then yep. the turn will end after you play every card. So I may have five cards, you may have six cards. You know, once yep. we've played what we can, and maybe you can't play everything because maybe you know the unit you were going to move died or something like that, and there's just not a synergy with you know another unit you have on the board, and then you just go to the next round. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, unlike other games where you might move all your units and shoot all your units or something like that, 
this one, you might have one unit that you've got a maximum of three orders cards you can play on, on any one unit. So you might have two units that you've just played the absolute bejesus out of. And then old matey down the back there that unfortunately gets none of your attention because they're not as important to that particular fight. And you'll, you'll then have to bring them up later in the game. So there, there's always that trade-off. Do you, do you really focus on this one unit or do you move to another unit? Do you pick cards when you're choosing your, uh, your orders cards at the start of each turn? Do you pick cards that you can only play on this one unit that looks like it's about to die, but they're really good cards? Yeah, all, all these decisions come into it. Sure. I, I played Battletech a lot uh, in, in college. It was my first like intro to, to like a miniature style game. And, and that was the thing, right? Like it was all movement, all shooting, then all melee, like everything was all, you know, compartmentalized in each, you know, movement phase and all that stuff. Uh, so I, I, I've never played like a, like a Warhammer style. You know, we, we you know, Battletech's got, you know, you've got your hexes and everything. So you don't have to worry about rulers and a lot of other stuff. Um, are, are you a big miniatures gamer like is this just an extension of, of stuff that you're like super into already massively massively miniatures <laughs> game um I've, I've played a whole suite of different games everything from you know the, the all the games workshop staples of uh 40k but also um the various variations of epic battlefleet gothic fantasy um dabbled in a bit of blood bowl i've played uh x-wing and, and armada i've played um bolt action uh, I've played a lot of Flames of War and, and the various, you know, different eras, and uh, including Team Yankee. So, yeah, I've, I've played a lot of different miniatures games, and, and this is a fairly natural extension of that to to um, put something of my own on the table. Sure. Do you – so I'm assuming then do you paint – do you find painting relaxing for you? Like, I look at it, and I'm like, there's no – like, I could never do it. There's just no way. <laughs> I have no patience for that. I'm I'm a glacial speed painter. But uh, when, when I do have the time to spend on them, then a lot of my stuff does turn out fairly well. And uh, since having kids on the scene, it's, um, it's not happened for me nearly as much as I would like to. And yeah. uh, particularly designing this game, I, I've been spending a lot of time actually working on the rules and making sure everything's okay rather than necessarily working on my own units. But uh, what, what I've got at the moment for my demo kit, I've got the uh, 3D print prototypes. And you can see when you look closely at them, the uh, striation, the sort of layers there of, um, of the printer. So I haven't bothered really going to town and painting these ones properly. I'm, I'm waiting until uh, WordForge sends me the, uh, the, the final resin product, and then I'm going to go nuts on these things. I'm really going to enjoy it. One of, the, um, one of the things I should point out with this game uh, and painting is the concept that every commander within the game is, is their own individual, even if they're part of a faction. You know, They've all got their own individual style. So if players want to do... A digital camouflage scheme, that's great. If you want to go a single colour, that's great. If you want to put speed stripes down it, if you want to put Japanese anime-style um, pictures on it, if you want to make it uh, tiger stripes, if you want to put it gold and blue, you know, you go nuts. Everything's valid. Cool. Very cool. Yeah, just like the battle thing. Yeah. You know. Although, I, you know, we never painted. I guess when they, when they rebooted it a couple of years ago, you can, you know, get old miniatures and stuff now. Yeah. Uh, but again, I don't. My my brother bought the box set, and I was like, "All right, well, I guess we're going to use these gray minis because clearly <laughs> neither one of us is going to paint these." Mm. We uh, but we did. We we uh, we got a big piece of plywood, you know, full full sheet of plywood. Hand drew all the hexes. I got a hot wire foam factory. We started making all kinds of three D terrain, and you know, cutting out trees and and all kinds of stuff. We, we went pretty crazy. I, I have to say it was enjoyable to do that, but there was so much nostalgia for me 
to play and then to be able to bring my brother into it. Cause he's like, you know, he goes, uh, you know, ATV riding, you know, he goes shooting, like he's a mechanic, like he's very, uh, you know, more physical. Yeah. Uh, so, so to be able to sort of bring him into this, this world, like we play board games on Wednesdays, he comes over for dinner and stuff. It's, it's been a really weird kind of twist. It's been a lot of fun for me to, to expose him to all that stuff. Yeah. So to give them a nudge in that direction. I've, my own brother is, um, is really into board games and uh, I've never successfully got him into war games. I, I got him to play Space Hulk once, and he, he gave me a sideways look and said, "You're trying to you're trying to get me into something." <laughs> that was as close as I could nudge him. So, yeah, right. I certainly hear you on terrain too. I'm I, I'm often guilty. I, I love making terrain, and I'm often guilty of having this beautifully laid out board with uh, unpainted miniatures on it because I've spent all the time on the terrain and none of it on the uh, <laughs> on the miniatures. <laughs> have you ever been? Have you ever had an experience like where you're maybe playing at the store? And someone shows up with unpainted minis. I mean, are they like booted? Do they let them play or what? No, most of the places we play here are fairly casual. It's only if you're uh, if you're going to show up to a tournament, that's when they usually mandate you have to have them painted. Um, and of course, they say three colours, and you've I've seen people put three dots of paint on the miniatures for it and say, "Yep, that's that's three <laughs> colours. You're good to go now." Um, so. Uh, I don't mind too much. I mean, I, I love the visual spectacle of a well-painted army on a on a great table, but equally, um, I, I can respect that people have got other things going on in their life, and if they prefer to find the time for gaming than than for hobby, um, I'm not going to say boo to them. So yeah, right, because it's more about the experience of being able to get together and you know yeah. just get minis on the table or get a board game on the table. I mean, like that that's the crux of it, right? Yeah, yeah, and and I mean these days you you do see. You know, people are more time poor. You do see a lot more of those games like, you know, Fantasy Flight stuff with all of the pre-painted um, Armada and, uh, and X-Wing. You know, people go for that. Equally, now they've brought out uh, Legion and you've got the unpainted miniatures there, it'll be interesting to see if that attracts the same crowd. But, uh, you know, you can understand that. And WordForge is, is acknowledging that as well. So uh, when you buy your, your core set of Armour Digital, for example, even though we're not going to have painted miniatures, We'll make one half of the other uh, miniatures in a certain color, and the other half will have a little bit of dye injected into the resin, so they come out a different color. So, if you want to roll them straight out of the box, you can still differentiate one from the other. Yeah, that'd be me <laughs> for sure. Now, uh, unlike most war games, um, in this game, you can build new units during the game. You know, you suffer a horrific loss on a turn, you do have a chance to, you know, kind of be able to to catch up, and that's. You know, you, you've got a whole other phase for that, um, which is the um, logistics phase? Yes, yes. So, uh, yeah, building new units is something you often see at the uh, the grand strategy sort of level or um, in uh, RTS computer games. And obviously, Armored Digital is uh, fairly heavily influenced by, um, by games like Total Annihilation, Supreme Commander, and those sorts of things. But uh, during this game, you can replace your losses by building new tanks. It's still a skirmish game. You're not going to build up a huge wave of tanks and just roll over the enemy. But um, it does add another point to the strategy. As you're saying, if, if you're having a really bad turn or a really bad couple of turns, you can turn it around by building the right units. So say a, um, a wolf tank, these are raider tanks, really fast, high firepower. If that gets into your backfield and it's really threatening all of your, uh, your command unit and your construction unit, you can go and build an elephant tank, which is a hard counter to it because we have a scissors, paper, rock sort of damage system. That can roll out the front gate immediately the next turn, just open up and start blatting away at that, uh, that wolf and delete it from the table. Equally, um, you can also repair units during the game, so you can drag them on board and try and fix them up. 
Um, part of the logistics phase is also grabbing resources from a mine in the centre of the table. So you've got a, a real focal point to the battle. And you can also do other sneaky things. For example, you can try and capture enemy units by reprogramming their um, their identified friend and foe systems and making them one of yours. So mm -hmm. if the enemy if the enemy blows up your construction vehicle, you know it's not all is lost. You can go and try and um, uh, steal their own one, or you can just wait for it to build uh, units, then grab them as they come out the uh, the front gate. Um, there's one other thing which which you can do uh, regards capturing units, and that's if your command vehicle gets destroyed because your solitary human being is inside that, they get fired out the top hatch like uh, like Battletech, like uh, MechWarrior, that sort of thing. In this game, though, they then parachute back down to Earth and they have to keep commanding their forces. Whilst one player tries to shoot or run them over, they've got to run back to the uh, command vehicle and actually build a new, uh, sorry, to the uh, production vehicle and then build a new command vehicle they can get them into. However, if they're sneaky, they can run up to the enemy command vehicle, punch in the eject code there and try and steal their command vehicle from them. I actually had a demo game where the uh, the other player decided on a suicidal battle run with his uh, command vehicle straight into the teeth of three of my tanks. I poured in the fire, blew him up, and he's ejected, rolled the dice and said, oh, that far, okay, I'm going to land on your command vehicle. And he successfully then booted me out of my own. So I did not see that coming. But uh, players who are bold enough and cunning enough can really reverse this game. And it, it may swing wildly one way and then the other, but it's it's like... You know any sort of sports game where the result is is always in contention right up till the very end. You know sure. it's it's hard it's hard to get into a situation where you go, yeah, I've I've lost, even though the game's still being played. Right, but you get some board games that are like that where you're just kind of like counting turns because you can just see that points are piling up with somebody else, and you're like, well, okay, I mean, I had fun, I guess, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and certain other miniatures games, um, they do have. It, not everybody acknowledges it, but they do have uh, list building as a big part of the game itself. So if you show up to a game and you look at their list and your list, you can already predict whether or not you're going to win or lose. Um, and this is not one of those games. In fact, if you were to show up to a tournament with all tanks and the enemy's got nothing but aircraft and you've got nothing to deal with that, all you have to do is change up your production specs, which are essentially your blueprints that allow you to build new units, and put some of your anti-aircraft vehicles in there instead. And then as you start playing, as you take losses, or you can even self-destruct one of your own vehicles before the enemy gets it, you can then uh, go and bring your own vehicles uh, out on the table and counter that threat. Cool. Very cool. Um, is, is there like a point-by system to start? Yeah. So if we're going to pop it open and, and open it up, it's, there's not – okay. So there's no points whatsoever. Everything, everything in the game has got what we call an equivalency principle. So all of the different tanks have the same power level, just different uh, – strengths and weaknesses. And this is the same for every new unit that we bring out. This is why we've spent so much time playtesting it. Not only what you get in the core box, but also most of the first stretch goals have already been playtested to death and they're ready for uh, commercial release. And all of these units, you just swap in one for another. So say you are, you're a very aggressive player, maybe you get rid of that elephant and you put in another wolf or you grab uh, one of the upcoming units, a cheetah. You know, very fast units with high firepower that you can just drive straight up to the enemy. Equally, if you're a defensive player, you might opt for more of the uh, the wolf, uh, sorry, the the rhino or the elephant tanks, which uh, have a longer range and can sit back and and hit the enemy. And then you'll support it with, say, a jackal, which can give your artillery a, a bonus to hit. Okay, cool. I mean, this is inherently a two-player game, right? I mean, kind of like if you're doing a you know like a Warhammer 40k, or can you know, kind of like BattleTech, can you throw you know a third or fourth person in a big enough table and and just go to town? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we determine the, the game size by saying how many commanders are playing. So one commander, two commander, or three. Um, 
that's how many commanders each each player gets, and each commander will have their own little little force. If you're playing a one commander game, you're on a four foot by four foot table, and the game has been designed and, and tested so it will actually accommodate four players playing simultaneously. It'll slow down because everyone's got to um, uh, play their own actions, but you know that's natural for having four people around the table. It is an alternating activation game, so you simply just go around the uh, the initiative stack, and one player after the other will play their particular order. Okay, cool. Now, is there a, a certain synergy between cards and particular types of tanks or other units where, um, you know, like, oh, this is really good for this, but, oh, crap, I, I only have an elephant. I, I can't, you know, I'm not going to be able to use this. Absolutely. Um, each of these cards, some of them will naturally uh, marry up with certain unit types. So, for example, a wolf that has high firepower is really useful when using the assault because it'll still roll enough dice to, to reliably cause damage to an undamaged target when it attacks. Um, equally, if you play, say, an assault card on an elephant, uh, it reduces your mobility, but it reduces the mobility to the same level as the elephant has naturally, so all you're getting is a free shot out of it. Um, likewise, if you're playing cards on certain vehicles, like the Rhino has very long range, if you play shoot orders on that one, you'll be able to affect far more of the battlefield than, say, a wolf will with its shorter range plasma weaponry. Okay. Cool. On top of that, too, we've also got um, some cards are, are specifically tied to certain units, so they're restricted to a, a certain firepower type or a certain uh, trait. So, for example, indirect fire can only be used by something with the artillery trait, which is obviously the elephant in the um, uh, core box, but there will be other artillery units released in the future. Uh, likewise, the HV shot that I mentioned earlier, you have to have a, a gorse weapon or a, a railgun. And... That's the rhino at the stage, but there will be other units will have that later on. So it's not tied to that particular unit, but yeah. Particular but, unit type, yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and, and this is, you know, as you're, as you're talking, we have, you know, there's new units that are uh, going to be coming out. So we're, you know, you're looking at fully supporting this in the future. You're going to have expansions, other units, other things that, that people can buy. Now, is that going to be available just straight through the website, or are you looking at potentially you know, doing another Kickstarter for an expansion down the, down the road? Yeah. So, um, yeah, certainly this this is not a game that's uh, do it at Kickstarter and then we're done. This is a game that is going to be released and then it'll have um, it'll have a life going on into the future. I've got a list of at least 50 different units that are being um, either in concept or being playtested or exist at the moment. So, yeah, lots of different options that people can play with. Um, this is a game that will be coming out uh, for uh, retail distribution as well. So... If people are interested in playing the game, then certainly talk to the local retailer, um, get them in touch with WordForge Games. Uh, once the once we've delivered to our backers, obviously they're the, the people that come first, um, we'll be looking at uh, at reaching out to a lot of retailers and getting the product out there so that they can uh, stock it as well. WordForge Games also sells all of their uh, their games directly to the website, so if people want to have a look at their previous games, like uh, Devil's Run and lots of stuff, that's up there. And when uh, Armored Digital is at retail release, that's going to be going up there too. Okay, cool. Um, I just had something that went away. Shit. Uh, I hate when it happens. That's fine. Um, with the um, with people collecting it too, I should point out that the uh, the core box set is enough there to allow you to pick up and play what we call a basic game. So there's none of the building stuff in there. It's just you know a command vehicle and three uh, combat tanks aside, and you can just go and play that. It actually plays really fast, so you're looking at sort of uh, 45 minutes-ish for a game uh, because without the building units, it's very attrition on those uh, tanks die very fast. But once you've um, 
once you've wrapped your head around the concept of it there and you, you like the game and you add the, the full game, you're probably looking at about 90 minutes or so to, uh, to play a full game um, at, at a one commander level. And if people want to expand their, their forces, then you've got the core set and that's got all of the, the dice and tokens and cards and everything you want in order to play. But if you go and buy an expansion of, uh, of an individual unit, you'll actually get the miniature, their stat card, their production card, and then you'll get a couple of extra orders cards that come with that as well. So as you expand your forces, you'll also expand um, you know, your different options that you can play with. Cool. And that's not a, that's not a terrible model. I mean, that's what we see with you know Fantasy Flight with X-Wing. You get... A couple of things you can get out, you can play it, and then, you know, if you enjoy it, you like that style, then you can, you know, slowly build up your army. I mean, it's like Warhammer 40K. I mean, you know, people are <laughs> dropping thousands of dollars on paints and minis and all that stuff. It's crazy. Yeah. And, and Wargamers, we're all notorious for that. We love to collect and expand our forces and grab one of everything. And even though this is a skirmish game, you don't have that effect where you, you've got a huge collection that then sits on the shelf. You know, you can rotate things in. So you might start with certain forces, then bring something else in mid-game to um to replace what you've got and throw that at the enemy. Equally, we've got uh, we this game does play out well at larger scales as well. I mentioned uh, two or three commander games, which you play on a six by four table. Um, those games, you know, it's a lot of units on the table, a lot of carnage goes on. And we're also planning a uh, a new game mode, which is essentially full scale war, where instead of commanding individual tanks, you command small units of uh of four tanks. So yeah, if if you want to go that sort of scale, you can play that way. It's all uh, it's all set up in that sort of regard. Cool. And I remember my question: <laughs> uh, Are you investigating doing like a you know like a tournament style play, like setting something up and, and potentially moderating, you know, a larger um, you know play setting, like you know, like what you see for for like Warhammer? Yeah, we're definitely looking at uh, organised play in the future. Obviously, the the first step is getting people playing the game and then uh, building the community that way. But um, yeah, organised play is definitely something we're looking to not not only um, uh, support but actually build into the the game model itself. I've I've had a lot of feedback from people I've played Devo games with saying that this is the sort of game that works equally well for a casual beer and pretzel player or for a serious tournament player if you want to go that way. And yeah, we're, we're looking at making sure that it, it's still useful on both of those levels right into the future, making sure that everything we bring out is play test, everything sort of fits into that same, uh, same power level. Okay, cool. And uh, the 15 millimeter size, is that fairly standard for war games or, or is that like cost considerations as far as like, you know, Kickstarter and, you know, building, you know, minis and all that other stuff? So um, as far as war games go, this is probably the second most popular style uh, scale, but not by a long shot, unfortunately. Uh, 28 to 32 mil is, is the that's the the king of uh, tabletop miniatures war games because that's where you're handling an in individual infantryman that um, you know it's got a good heft in the hand and you can move them around. Because we're based on tanks, um, 15 mil is essentially the equivalent of 28 mil, but for for tanks instead. So. When you pick up an individual tank, it's the equivalent of a 28 mil infantryman um, in terms of the size and the, the heft of it. And this is typically, if you're talking about a 15 mil or 10 mil or 3 mil or 6 mil scale game, you know, those what we call smaller scale games, they're actually larger in scope in terms of instead of playing with a platoon's worth of soldiers, you're now playing with a company or a battalion or, you know, these larger organisations, lots more assets on the field, lots more, you know, big hands, big maps sort of stuff as I used to, you know, we used to call it in the army. And... When you're moving that sort of stuff around at that scale, it's, it's a very different game to the games you're playing at 28mm. But being a skirmish game, 
we're still playing at that 28 mil scale just with tanks instead of infantry. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Yeah, 28, I'm, I'm familiar, you know, with the, you know, D&D and, you know, miniatures and stuff for that and getting your, your maps and, you know, terrain and all that stuff together. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's plenty of terrain out there for um for 15 mil because um, uh, World War Two and, and uh, World War Three situations are both modelled in Flames of War, which is quite popular. So there's plenty of terrain makers out there. I've actually been looking at a whole range of different uh, terrain makers today and we're, we're going to start dropping some updates in our campaign about, hey, if you want terrain that suits the theme, here's a manufacturer, here's a manufacturer, you know, get some of those out there so people can see what's available. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. You know, sure, all that stuff that's in the community, right? All, all uh, tides, tides rise, all boats, right? Yeah. Cool. And, you know, we're, we're big fans of the uh, the 15 mil scale for our obvious reasons, but it's it's nice to talk to other people who are passionate about their product and you can easily sort of see the, the links between using theirs and using ours and, yeah. Cool. Now, do you do, like, other gaming? Like, do you do D&D? Do you, you know, board game? Do you do all that kind of stuff? I would really love to get into RPGs as soon as I can find the time, <laughs> but that's, that's always the uh, the limiting factor. So, yeah, I, I obviously play miniatures war games. Um, obviously, uh, I don't play as much as I would like to, but uh, uh, board games I'm also quite into. My family's always been into board games, and um, I've been trying to uh, mentally sort of put aside a couple of the concepts that I'm working on for, for board games until after Armour Digital has been released and out there. So, yeah, but um, it's... It's one of the, the wonderful things about being a game designer is you can hook into a, a great community of other people that like to design games as well, and it gets you thinking about things you might not have thought of before. And, yeah, for me, um, designing board games was not something I'd considered doing previously, but based on the um, uh, the work that I've done on this one and, and the feedback I've got from other people, then, yeah, I've, I've got two games um, in concept at the moment and very early steps of sort of laying out the rules that uh, we'll see how that goes. Nice. And, and it is a really cool community. I mean, it's very welcoming, very opening, uh, opening, very open. Um, you know, and you can talk to other designers and stuff and, and it's very, you know, it's, it's not close. like, well, I can't ever talk to you about, you know, game mechanics or game thing. Cause you're going to, you know, steal it. Game mechanics are what they are. It's, it's rare for someone to come up with a completely new mechanic. You just, you know, are manipulating things in different ways through a different skin on it. And, uh, you know, we're only tangentially involved, uh, you know, with doing stuff like this, but it, but it is a very cool community to be a part of. It is, it is. And particularly for my design philosophy, I, I try and design the mechanics of the game to suit the theme uh, rather than just grabbing wholesale, you know, this is a standard mechanic, this is a standard mechanic, make it happen. And I, I think a lot of the other designers I've seen are, are fairly like that as well. They, they understand the basics of, you know, this is a worker placement game or this is an area control game, whatever it may be. But... Um, they're still bringing out a unique product that people will like to play because it has something extra or it's put together in a different way from everything else. And you don't, you know, you don't win the stakes of uh, getting a board game noticed by people by simply bringing out something that somebody else has done before. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a good community. We all feed off each other. We're all creatives. We all love doing this sort of stuff. Oh, do you have a particular style of board game that you prefer? Um, you know, Euro style, Ameritrash or area controls or something that really kind of, Gets you worked up when you play? Um, unfortunately, uh, I don't have a single style that I, I tend to get behind because these days my board gaming often happens with my extended family or my cousins get together once or twice a year and 
in those sort of situations, party games have really been doing the round. So we're talking about cards against humanity and all that sort of stuff. It's not, you know, that if I was to choose a game that's my favourite, I wouldn't have chosen that uh, to start with. But, you know, you get in these situations and, and half the fun is the game and half the fun is the people that you're playing it with, as, as you well know. Um, if it was my choice, I'd, I'd probably be looking at games like Risk and those sorts of things. So um, not quite grand strategy of, of World and Flames or, or those sort of war games, but certainly something where you're... Uh, you're plotting what you're doing, you know, access and allies, risk, those sort of games where you're, you're trying to gain control of, of things and you've got a whole range of different assets to play with. Sure, that makes sense. <laughs> um, it's well into wargaming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so did you have any personal trepidation of this, you know, with this being your first Kickstarter, was there like, you know, that lurch in the stomach when you, you know, click the go live button or were you, you know, pretty you know, felt pretty secure. Like I, you know, I know I've got a good game, you know, we've, we've done all the stuff, we've done the marketing, we've got a solid concept and, you know. I, I too, there's, there's nothing more, um, nothing more grounding than, uh, than putting yourself out there and finding out exactly what people think of you. And, uh, it's, it's a good experience and a bad experience because it's, as my first Kickstarter, it's a very nerve wracking thing to, to put it out there and see how well it does. Is this the sort of concept that people enjoy? But uh, equally, I'm, I'm very lucky to have a, um, an experienced publisher to sort of hold my hand through it as well. And um, WordForge has been fantastic throughout the, the whole process there. Equally, though, it's, uh, it's been a wonderful thing to see people who I've never met before somewhere out in the world um, and, and who may not have even played the game simply looked at the concept, read the rules and said, I get it, you know, this, this is great. And getting the feedback from them who have suddenly become super fans in Germany or the UK or, you know, the other side of the world as far as I'm concerned is, you know, that's a real heartwarming thing to see. Cool. Now, would would WordForge be doing what they're doing if it wasn't for a platform like Kickstarter? I don't know that they would. Uh, certainly for their first couple of games, they got them off the ground with Kickstarter and um, they've, they've just come off the back of a, a very successful one in D-Day Dice. I mean, you've, you've had a look at that and seen the, uh, the results they got from that particular campaign. And having that crowdfunding platform, uh, Mark Rapson has, has, has said a couple of times that, look, this is not simply um, seed money to get it off the ground. This is, this is a marketing tool as much as anything else. You're putting a game out there, people are, are pledging it and they're, they're getting something to, to be the first wave of, um, of adopters of a new game. And that's, you know, that, that's something really special. And uh, I'm, I'm very aware that Kickstarter have, has its foibles. I've, uh, I've kickstarted a few of my, a uh, few other games where I've been a backer and this is my first time on this particular side of the fence, but it's, it's something where you can get involved in something from, from the ground up and then forget about it for six months and then suddenly get a package arrive on your doorstep, go, Hey, I remember that game. So it's, I don't know if anybody else is like this, but I, I feel like I'm getting a Christmas present from someone I don't know. When you when you order something and then it finally arrives, particularly here in Australia with our long shipping times, um, it arrives and, and you go, oh, awesome! I've got you know I've got something I've completely forgotten about, and you get to have that process of discovery all over again. Mm-hmm. For me, it's when the bill comes. Like, why the hell is my oh? I back like four Kickstarters. Okay, that's probably why. Well, <laughs> it's, it's kind of good too because you. If, if you go to a, a store and you, you spend a whole lot of money, you walk out the front door and then you get in trouble with the missus about uh, how much have you spent on gaming, you immediately get the buyer's remorse. This time you, you get the buyer's remorse and you get it all out of your system so that when the stuff comes in, it's not tainted with that sort of association. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's kind of sticking on the Kickstarter theme. 
Um, do you feel like there's a, a certain level of saturation that we've reached with with board games, RPGs, and things on on Kickstarter, or is it you know, you know, the more the merrier? You know, let's get as many things as we can, you know, funded and and out in the wild, and and maybe things don't fund the first time. You know, just gets enough exposure that you know things come back around, or just you know, kind of pushes people ahead, you know, a little bit, and we're like, well, okay, we almost got it, you know, we'll come back or maybe we can do this on our own or, you know, at least we know that there's some level of interest. Well, people will say this about books too. You know, there's some ridiculous number of books uploaded to Amazon every single day by self-published authors and how could anyone possibly uh, bother doing any of that sort of stuff? Equally though, I still read books. You know, so many people around the world still read books. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's a whole library. There's a very disorganised library behind me too. And, People will always read books, whether it's, you know, on an e-reader or physical copies or whatever it may be. And I think it's the same thing with board games. You know, we board games used to be something that you'd pull out on a family fun night and you'd play with the kids and you'd play something terrible like Monopoly. And we've, we've progressed from that to now board games are something that's it's an acceptable practice for people all around the other world to, to play with. And, you know, you see cafes and restaurants and all that sort of stuff playing board games in store and... I think part of that is is due to um, you know platforms like Kickstarter and the fact that we can get so many more designs out there that if you want to make it, you first of all a, a starting point is that it has to be a fantastic quality game. You know, you don't bring out a, a terrible quality game, put it out in front of people, and uh, expect to do anything with it. So mm-hmm. it it does up the ante for everyone that's that's trying to compete in this world. Equally, though, it, it does mean that it is harder to to make yourself heard. And, and as a, a small company, as um. Uh, Wordforge is, it's one of those things where you're never going to be able to compete with something like, you know, uh, Cool Mini or Not or, or Fantasy Flight Games or Games Workshop when you're straight out of the gate. But you can find a loyal following because you can reach people all over the globe and find people that really enjoy your particular game. Whereas without something like Kickstarter, without these sort of, you know, the internet, um, you wouldn't be able to find these people and you'd instead end up with a game that you've produced just for yourself and you play with, you know, your brother and your dog. So, you know, it's it's, it's wonderful that we can reach all these people. In fact, um, Armour Digital, not, not just in reaching people, but in its development has really benefited from the fact that we have these platforms available, that we have, you know, the internet to reach people. I'm in Canberra in Australia. I have a playtesting team around me, but I have a publisher in the UK. I have a miniatures designer in the US. I have artists in Japan, in Italy, in France, in the UK, the US, you know, Having grown up before the internet existed um, and now being able to experience the internet as it is in its, all its glory and splendor and terribleness today, it is one of those things that, you know, this game would not have existed without those sort of, uh, those pieces of critical infrastructure to make it happen. Sure, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's same, you know, for the podcast, we've got players in the UK, we've got, you know, friends in Australia, we've got, you know, my one GM is in Florida, the other guy's in Nevada, like we're you know, Wisconsin, I'm in Arizona, we're just, you know, we're all over the place. And, and through the, the wonder of the internet, you know, we're all able to, you know, get to hang out and, and, you know, play games and talk about games and just, you know, just bullshit about stuff. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it, it is. And it's, it's all about finding your own people and uh, they're not necessarily the ones living next door to you anymore. They're the ones on the other side of the world. And I mean, even the fact that we're talking here in real time, um, via the magic of the internet, able to see each other in the um, uh, in the recording and all sorts of stuff. It's 
you know, it's, it is fantastic stuff. And sometimes you have to sit back and really wonder about, you know, wow, where, where are we going to be in another 10, 20 years type of thing? Mm -hmm. See, that's what worries me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, it, but it's cool, right? Like, so I used to, I used to dread doing it. Like when we first started doing it, it was like, oh man, we're going to, we're going to talk to people. Like, I don't know. Like I, I'm not, I'm not a people. Like I don't, this seems really bad. But, you know, like the more you do it and, and, you know, especially for something like this, like we both love games, right? So you bring people on and you talk about games. It's like, oh, we have this cool thing in common already. Like we've made, you know, so many friends, you know, just from from doing this. And, and, and some of them are just Facebook friends or just say just whatever. But like it's a it's a whole other thing. But like we've made some really strong relationships, you know, from this and because of games. And it's, you know, people that aren't around here you know it's people from from all over the place it's it's it is really cool really cool yeah it is and and like you said a lot of us are introverts i'm an introvert typically but once you start talking about something i enjoy then you have trouble shutting me up so yeah just just love love chatting to that about someone else who's, who's passionate about it it is a it is a wonderful thing to do and um talking to people from cultures as well is, is something that, that i do enjoy doing is uh, they all, they often say about the US and the UK are separated by a common language, and you know, here, here we are, Australia, sort of this sort of odd child in the middle. We we speak a bit of each, but uh, I, I love coming on and talking to talking to Americans, talking to to Brits, talking to people from all over, and seeing what they have to offer. And you know, I, I often get told, "Oh, it's that guy with the cool accent." I'm like, "What accent? You guys are the ones with the accents." <laughs> Well, it was, it was so cool. We got a good day, like right at the beginning of the show, and I was like, "Yes." <laughs> we we don't drop. We refer to that as a sort of awkward talk. We don't drop a lot of that, but we, we like to put in just a bit to remind you that hey, we, we still exist. We're still down here. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> well, uh, yeah. Shout out to to Daniel from Deep Dark Designs. They're over in the UK. Um, they came on to to promote a Kickstarter. I don't know last year, or the year before, and, and I tell you, we we wound up like maybe doing about an hour. We were on for like four hours. Like we were just talking, it was around the time of Brexit. I'm like, hey, look, I don't know what the hell is going on, but I want to ask you a couple of questions. Cause it's like, you know, like how often are you just going to talk to somebody from England? So it was, ah, it was just so cool. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so so to jump back, what you were saying is as far as, uh, you know, authors uploading, you know, millions of books to Amazon, you are also an author yourself. So how many books are you uploading to Amazon? <laughs> at, at the moment, I've got a couple of works that are on hold whilst I busily promote this. But uh, I, obviously, I'm, I'm a full-time worker and, and I have a job and, and I have kids and lots of stuff. So it's it's something that I'm, I'm building up to at the moment. I do have a published series through a, uh, a company in uh, Los Angeles actually called uh, Monolith, uh, the Chinatown series, which is set in a, a post-apocalyptic world, nuclear holocaust sort of uh, setting. And um, this is all about a police detective in a city that's called a safe zone in uh, what was Chinatown for uh, LA. And uh, yeah, he's he's not your traditional police detective because uh, world the world is a lot uh, harsher. It's a lot um, meaner to people than, than normally. So he's not out there and issuing traffic tickets. He's he's out there and looking for people who are harvesting people for their organs or um you know taking massive amounts of people into slavery or doing heinous things like stealing tech resources from the city. Those sorts of things. But uh, you're talking about a world with mutants. You're talking about a world with uh, killer robots and cyborgs and lots of stuff existing. But it's still a gritty sort of '80s, '90s uh, police, uh, police. Well, not procedural, but gritty, uh, hard-boiled detective sort of uh, series. So, 
yeah, it's it, it wasn't my setting. It's actually uh, set in a, another RPG uh, background from the uh, the publisher there, and, and a big shout out to uh, to Monolith and Crush Pop Productions because um, Mark Malero, who runs the place, is a fantastic guy and well worth talking to, well worth uh, having a look at the um, Toxic Holocaust sort of setting. But uh, yeah, he he offered the series to me because he'd seen me write other things for um for particular games as time fiction, and um, we've got that published out there. So yeah, nice, very cool. Um, do you have, are there other, um, genres that you're, that you're interested in or you kind of mostly sci-fi? Yeah. Sci-fi? yeah, mostly sci-fi. I do dabble in, in fantasy and a few other bits and pieces. I, I've got a number of, uh, short stories published in various anthologies across the world. And they, they dabble in everything from, you know, everyday life to sort of magical realism and literary fiction and that sort of thing. But, uh, when, when I sit down to write science fiction is what I've always read and what I've always enjoyed. And I, I do have a side love of fantasy as well, but uh, it's not a, not quite as strong as science fiction. That's, yep, it, it's actually a lot lot of fun to um uh, to to build these sort of worlds because my writing and my game design actually feed off each other. And, and with Armored Digital, for example, one of the novels that I'm, I'm penning at the moment is actually set in the same world as Armored Digital, but it's uh it makes a um a really good sort of synergy to be able to say, all right. The story needs these elements, and the game needs these elements, and they, yeah, they, they fill in the blanks for all, all uh, for each other. Cool, cool. Uh, shit, I said something else again. Damn it! <laughs> I, I, I catch you. So derailed your train of thought, no doubt. No, like because you're saying stuff, and I'm thinking, oh, I should ask that, and I didn't write it down. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> um, the the company uh, uh, WordForge also offers uh, you know along with all these cool games and everything else uh, you guys offer services through the company as well you guys do artwork 3D printing sculpting and other stuff like that for aspiring designers or people who are just you know like hey I, I need you know minis for X I guess yeah yeah certainly um so obviously with Kickstarters a lot of other games that come out and. Uh... They do um, both design and uh, casting of resin miniatures for uh, all of these sort of games. So if you've got a Kickstarter and you need miniatures, you can get in touch with them. Um, even if you just want to build a, a custom miniature for yourself, you know, you, you want to insert yourself into 40K or uh, into uh, Blood Bowl or something like that, you can easily get in touch with them, have something made up and have that uh, out there in the world. Um, equally, the uh, the co-founder of WordForge is, um, he actually lives in Poland. Uh, Dominic is an artist. And if you have a look at our cover art, for example, uh, for Armour Digital, that's one of his pieces there. So really high high quality work that he puts out. He's done a lot of stuff for other um, areas previously. You can also see his uh, work on uh, Devil's Run. So, yeah, if you're interested in all those sort of services, they're all uh, all available through the company as well. Nice. And I remember what I was going to ask again. <laughs> always a couple of questions delay, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, are you an HP Lovecraft fan? Since since you're interested in, in sci-fi, is that sort of ten, tangentially something that you're interested in, or um, Lovecraft? I've only really had a uh, a pop culture style introduction to. I've never never gotten into it more um, in more detail. A lot of what I tend to go for, you know, people talk up the the classics in sci-fi and fantasy, and, and not to cast any aspersions on on those real classics. You know, there are some works that I've I've read and quite loved, but. I'm one of these people that, that loves reading the underdogs, loves reading the, the ones that are a fantastic story, but it hasn't necessarily gotten out there and had more uh, more attention paid to it. So, yeah, I I like the look of it, but I haven't yet dug my uh, my toe quite into that uh, that pool. So, yeah. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> and, and and what else does uh, this word forge have in the works? Is there anything that you can 
and share with us the stuff that may be coming up in the future? Yeah. So WordForge isn't looking to get uh, a, a huge sprawling list of different uh, games going at the same time because obviously there's, there's a matter of cost in running all of those simultaneously. But uh, they do have um, Devil's Run, now Armored Digital, and there's going to be another game brought out called Star Knights, which is a uh, 28 mil skirmish game, uh, 28 to 32 mil skirmish game of essentially uh, human and animal DNA mixed to uh, create these sort of different people. So like uh, you have a half lion, a half man, or a half buffalo, half woman type of thing. All these sort of uh, characters are on the table and it's it's a futuristic sci-fi game there. So uh, Mark Rapson's actually working on that one himself. That's one of his uh, brain children, uh, whereas a lot of the other games that he's got, he's got another designer's for. So for example, D-Day Dice and uh, Cheeks, which is a... Um, uh, a cheeky sort of double entendre game about hamsters. Um, family game, but uh, adults will get a bit of a giggle that kids won't understand as well, that sort of double entendre. All of these games have, and I'm a digital with myself, we've got a designer who is really passionate about the game and, and will make sure that all of the rules are, are up to date. There's a community that's engaged, that sort of thing. But um, they, they're not looking to have a huge stable where they're trying to manage 14 different people simultaneously. Sure, sure, sure. That makes it easier in the long run, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Focus on the things that you have going on at work. And particularly with the difference between, obviously, board games are, um, they've got a more more of a book sort of a release model where here's a board game and the world gets in and plays it and really loves it. And with some exceptions, most of those games will have a, a very short shelf life where people will play them, enjoy them, and then they'll retire them to their um, their games collection. If they're a good game, they'll stay there for a while. Otherwise, they might get sold off. Whereas with miniatures games, you're talking about an ecosystem where people will get into a game and they'll play it and play it and play it over a long period of time. So, yeah, there's three sort of miniatures games ecosystems that they're, they're managing. But, yeah, board games, it's it's a little bit more flexible because you can bring out a release, you can have it out there, and then just put it on the back catalogue and um, move on to the next thing. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I've, I've never really thought about it that way. I, I'm, I'm newer to board games in this new style. Like, you know, you, know, you say, oh, we played Monopoly or Parcheesi or something like that. It was my, you know, growing up, we played that kind of stuff. Um, so I've been doing, you know, like more serious board gaming since the podcast started. And and I'll see stuff come across, you know, Twitter, like, oh, this is the coolest thing. Like Azul is the new one uh, or one of the new ones. And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I guess it looks interesting. The components look cool. Like the quality looks nice. And I had the opportunity to play it. I'm like, okay, cool. I like this. This is good. You know, abstract, you know, we've, we play super cutthroat when, you know, when we play anything really, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, you know, it, it's one of those things like where we have games that we play, I guess, like quite a bit, but you know, I know people who have, you know, like 1500 games in their collection and they play this game like once a year or whatever. It, it's really weird to think about it that way. Cause my collection is not as big. We, we roll through things, you know, fairly quickly and, sure. and we'll play a lot of games and not just like, oh, this one's new. We play this a lot and like, you know, kind of put it away. Yeah. And as as gamers, you know, if, if you're a board gamer, a lot of people there are more open to new titles for, for that exact reason because you'll, you'll play something, you'll really enjoy it and you go, yeah, that, that was a fun game, but now we're done with it. You know, we'll move on to the next concept because there's always something new coming out. And it'll only be a handful of things that you really return to time and time again. You know, your ticket to ride, your katana, or whatever it is that particularly hits your targets. Um, I've found with other miniatures wargamers, you do have to do a bit of work to convince them even to try out a new game because they'll look at it and go, 
I already play bolt action and 40k and I don't have time or, or resources for another game type of thing. So that, I think that's why um, in miniatures war games in particular, you're seeing a real proliferation, proliferation of uh, skirmish games. Um, they look a lot cheaper and, and easier to get into because you've got a smaller investment in um, both in terms of the uh, the amount you have to buy and in terms of how much you have to paint and, and get across the rules for. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I designed Armour Digital for people like me that don't get to uh, play all that often. And so if you've not played in months, you can jump on the table, pull out the cards. Within five minutes or so, you're back across the rules and there's no there's none of these little gotcha sort of moments that you find in some other rule sets. Um, I, I was terrible for that when I was playing, uh, particularly Flames of War version 3. Uh, play things like mid-war and there's always this tiny little line in one paragraph buried on page 382 or something <laughs> of the rule book and you go, oh, that's right, damn it. Um, you know, I was, I was playing against a guy with uh, two two tigers and a, um, and a Stuka and th that was about all he had. And I thought, okay, the only thing I've got to hurt him with is my 88s and I'll place him in ambush there. Okay, that fantastic, that's my plan. And it was only when he rolled right up to the objective and was about to take it and I placed my ambush that he said, uh, actually, sorry, mate, really hate to do this to you, but <laughs> look there on that page and I read it and went, oh, that's game. Thanks for playing. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you, you do get a few of those moments where you don't realise this tiny little little element there and it just trips up your entire plan. Yeah. I, how often do they do rules updates? Like I know like the Warhammer 40K stuff, they just did, I guess, a rules update within the last two years or so. Is that like a... Like changing additions for D and D, like is it a fairly common occurrence? I think with larger games companies, your edition changes are usually tied to game releases. So, um, you know, forty K has got its own cycle. Where for those that aren't aware, there's there's a whole bunch of different factions. You've got a core set of rules, and then you've got rules for each of those factions called codexes. So, if you want to bring out new models, you have to have a codex book that has those models rules in it, so that people can play with them immediately. And a lot of their, their releases are tied to the release of that codex. So, hey, we're bringing out the new Imperial Guard codex and we're also bringing out these three tanks and these three new um, uh, infantry box sets at the same time. So here you go. It's a big release. Everyone can get into it. Um, it it's got its positives and negatives. I got out of 40K in part because of the rate of rules change. It was just happening too fast for me and um, having to buy new rules and then get across them and then play them when you don't play as often as you'd like to. It's just, yeah, it's something you can't really keep up with. Um, you don't see as many updates with, say, Fantasy Flight games because they like to expand the game through selling new expansions. And that's that's more of the model we're looking at here is the base game rules are pretty solid. There's not much variation that goes on with those. And so when we release the rules, if we need to, we can update them online. But um, people don't often have to refer back to the rule book in the first place, so it's not a big deal. If you want to expand the game, though, that's when you can buy new units. And every time something new comes out with, say, a different uh, ability that uh, other units don't have or it'll have new orders cards that you haven't seen before, it'll keep the game fresh without having to do this sort of big bang release for one faction and then move on to the next faction, another big bang release, and try to uh, play test and balance and get all the, the power levels right on those. Is yeah, I, You know, if, if Games Workshop managed to make everything balanced, I would be absolutely normal. A lot of people complain about the uh, the relative balance in games, games workshop games, but you know if their distribution model, their, their sort of release model, uh, it would be a super superhuman effort to make everything on the same level. I think to uh, to really match up. So yeah, it's um it's how they work. You know, we work differently, but uh, it, it's all valid. 
For sure, for sure. Cool. Well, I, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Uh, there's links for all the things in the show notes. We, we're fully funded, right? So there, there's no uh, no worries. So like, oh, maybe, maybe it will, maybe it won't. You can get in now. You're you're going to get your game in November as long as everything runs smooth, right? I mean, Wordforge is quite confident that we'll be able to make November, and uh, we we don't see any uh, anything popping up in the way. There's no licensing. There's none of that sort of stuff. We have to rely on outside agencies. They do all their own casting. The rules are licensed directly from me, so there's no yeah no hangups that are going to uh, really prevent that stuff from happening. Awesome. So we we hope everybody's going to go and check that out. You know, at least take a look. You know, jump in, back it, especially if you're a, a war gamer. You know, miniatures gamer. Um, you know, even if you're into, you know, RPGs, there's some crossover there, right? I mean, D&D started as a war game. <laughs> yeah. You've got the history to draw from, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and like I said, you know, this is the sort of game that is really, it's designed around its theme. So if you want to play something that's all about AI and drones and all sorts of stuff and building units, it is designed from the ground up around that theme. It's not just a game engine ported into a new setting. So yeah, it's... It's something to, to check out, even if you just want to check it out online with the uh, the online uh, demo via Tabletop Simulator, well worth a shot. Feel free to message us and ask us any questions about the game. I'm, I'm more than happy to talk, and you know, as, as I said to you earlier, you get me started on this game, it's hard to shut me up, so you know, feel <laughs> free to ask me anything. Cool. Awesome. All right. Well, thank everybody for, for checking this out. Don't forget, we have coffee for sale, tinyurl.com forward slash legendarybrew. Uh, we're on all the social media platforms, so if you can like us, follow us, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your neighbors, tell that guy you work with that kind of smells funny. We'll take him too. It doesn't matter. Uh, but thanks, everybody, for checking it out, and uh, we'll catch you next time. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop broadcast network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.